Welcome to the Lean Solutions Podcast, where we discuss business solutions to help listeners develop and implement action plans for true lean process improvement. I am your host, Patrick Adams. Hello, everybody. This week, I'm talking with Bob Emiliani, engineer, researcher, author, historian of progressive management, educational reformer, and executive coach. Bob has also authored or co-authored 45 peer-reviewed papers in six different subject areas, including leadership management, management history, supply chain management, higher education, and materials engineering. He's also the author of many different books, co-author and author of many different books. Uh, Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you. Happy to be here, Patrick. I'm excited to have you back, Bob. This is actually your second time on the show. Previously, we talked about lean and leadership. Uh, and I'm excited to, to kind of dive into another subject today, uh, specifically around fake lean. So that's going to be fun. Indeed it will. <laughs> so what have you been up to uh, these days, Bob? Are you uh, busy with any specific research studies? Yeah, I'm continuing along the line of research that I've been doing for a while, which is to understand why most leaders are not that interested in lean or progressive management, transformation, any kind of major change and so i continue to add little bits and pieces to that research Mm. and so um yeah the thing i'm looking now as now is is trying to um kind of move thinking if there's enough uh, ideas that i have to move people beyond this notion of behavior change Mm. you know and that's that's the answer to our all of our problems is getting leaders to change their behaviors and uh People have been at that for you know about a hundred years now, and uh, without a lot of success. And so, uh, I think we got to move on from that idea. Yeah. So that's my my upcoming uh, research project. No, well, that's exciting. I'll be looking yeah. forward to see that. But you also have a, a series of books out uh, that you know kind of yeah. hit on some of these topics. And you know, any 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 thoughts around you know why we aren't further along than than where we could be right now? Well, I mean, what what those books are doing is looking at the problem from four different directions. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, if if you think of a fishbone diagram, why do we have this effect of leaders not so interested in lean? What are the causes and so forth? And so I'm trying to run down, you know, what are the major causes? And I think the four books do a pretty comprehensive job of looking at the major causes from four different directions. And so there is just, um, um, uh, you know, well, First book is looking at sort of the economic, social, political, and historical reasons why we don't do it. The next two book, two books are looking at aesthetic and spiritual reasons, and then the fourth book is looking at really focusing in on aesthetics and that things need to look a certain way in order to be accepted mm-hmm. and move forward with. And if they don't look a certain way, then um, uh, you don't move forward with it. And so lean to a lot of leaders doesn't look like what it needs to look like in order to be accepted. And I think the latest book, The Aesthetic Compass, is kind of the really the easiest to understand, uh, um, and then the other ones get into a lot of, of detail. What's interesting, uh, uh, just a quick digression here, is that one reader told me, you know, if you're a, a lean enthusiast, a lean practitioner, you should read the four books in the order that I wrote the books. Mm-hmm. And if you're a uh, president of a company, you should re- read it in the reverse order. Interesting. <laughs> so. So practitioners should start with triumph of classical management and executives should start with uh, the aesthetic compass. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Why do you think Um, that is? What would be the benefit of reading either way? Because obviously we have listeners that are on both sides of that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think reading it from the aesthetic compass 
backwards is it's more of a softer touch. Mm, okay. <laughs> and the uh, like classical management is kind of, um, you know, I guess in your face, really get into, you know, I mean, I, I, the way I write or my style of writing is just to put, put the reality of it out there, you know, not mm -hmm. sugarcoat it, just say like it is, you know, yeah. try, try to be value, not having value judgments, just say, here's, here's how it is. Sure. And, and that can be off-putting to some people. So anyway. it can be. Yeah, and yeah. as far as it being off-putting, what are, what do you what would you say are some of the maybe the the points that uh, maybe are the harshest in that people is you know have a hard time accepting? What would be some of those uh, those points? Uh, people have a hard time accepting what lean does to one status, mm. and uh, so the, you know people work very hard in different ways, and we all do. We're human. And so we have concerns, whether we realize it or not, about our, our status, our relative status to others. How do we develop a higher status? How do we maintain status? Uh, how do we avoid losing status? And mm. so that, that ends up being a big part of this. Sure. A huge part of this, surprisingly. Um, Triumph of Classical Management said, you know, it's basically we have a political problem in terms of moving lean forward. And so, you know, looking at these solutions within the behavioral realm you know, leaders' behaviors really doesn't cut it. Mm. Oh. And anyway, yeah, that's that's a couple of really great points. Uh, do you think that that has uh, a lot to do with why we see uh, what you would call fake lean? I would I would call the uh, con continuous appearance, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what would you? Yeah, Mark Raven would call it lame. Uh, lean yes. mistakenly executed. That's right. Yeah. Well, just a little brief uh, brief history on lean. I mean. When I left industry back in 2000, uh, and, and actually it was uh, 99, but around 2000, 2001, I defined fake lean uh, uh, in a particular way, which was continuous improvement without respect for people. Mm. Because it was apparent by the late 90s that most organizations didn't understand or practice um, TPS you know, in a Toyota way or, or lean well or correctly, so it didn't produce. The business or the human results that you would hope you know the results were poor you know lots of layoffs um due to productivity improvement and the layoffs were due to a lot of factors there was globalization going on and so forth um, although it is noteworthy that really no, no none of the top people in lean world publicly addressed the problem of layoffs due to lean mm. with, you know due to productivity improvement i mean they were uh, silent on that publicly. They may have had private conversations with, you know, company leaders and so forth, but publicly it was a, a silent. Anyway, that that bothered me because, you know, I mean, our our, our especially our um, people who are doing the value creating work got hit really hard. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are the people I have a lot of empathy with and uh, and for. And um, you know, anyway, so. Um, you know, the, the layoffs bugged me just, you know, so I ended up writing about this um, uh, in various places in the really in series of books. And I, I refer to it as labor side, you know, like its own kind of type of a, a genocide sort of thing that the leaders didn't weren't able to or didn't want to distinguish between process costs and labor costs. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things the value stream map was to show you that your your money problem is not labor. It's tied up in all this inventory. That's right. And, and they just, you know, they didn't, 
they didn't care about that. What the value stream map seemed to show people was look at all this labor. Mm, right. <laughs> and instead of look at all this inventory and, and all this batch and queue processing. And so it just led to layoffs, you know, over a 30 year period. Mm. Anyway, sorry, digression. So when I, when I started teaching uh, lean leadership in university, I wanted to find a really simple way to describe the difference between you know what continuous improvement without respect for people was, which I called fake lean, and what mm -hmm. continuous improvement and respect for people is, which is real lean. And that worked really well you know, for a long time, but in recent years, and you've probably seen on LinkedIn or heard elsewhere that people are using fake lean as a you know, pejorative uh, uh, term, you know, that, that basically a, a disapproval of somebody's uh, lean thinking or, or, or practice. And right. That's not how I intended it. No. It's just to distinguish between the, you know, the, the empirical reality of what's happening in organizations. Right. Um, and so, Bob, what do you, you know. think are the repercussions of uh, organizations that do look at labor reduction as a part of? Uh, their lean journey well you know it there's there's some weird things go on because leaders will say on the one hand uh we can't find people you know and 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 hiring is difficult and um you know all those sort of problems and but then they'll lay people off and they're really not thinking too hard about you know moving people around from into different parts of the company mm -hmm. and that's partly because people get pigeonholed in certain ways uh, you know, you're an engineer. Well, you know, maybe the engineer wants to transition into HR. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the engineer, uh, you know, mechanical engineer. Uh, there's a lot of engineers, by the way, who are mechanical, who know a lot about software. Sure. And they want to get into, I don't know, DevOps or Scrum or Agile or whatever. Um, you know, and so uh, companies don't often give a lot of thought to the desires that people have because maybe they don't want to be an engineer lifelong. Um, there was a recent article about regrets that people have in their college majors. And, and um, you know, some 20 or 30% of people regret their engineering major. And, you know, some people higher up the scale that they showed in the chart, were, you know, um, are unhappy with their humanities major, you know. So, um, and this comes to you at different points in your life. You may be happy with it, your engineering degree in the first five, seven, 10, 12 years, but then you kind of get tired of it and want to do something else. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, companies, aside from sort of internal postings, are not really good at understanding, you know, people's growth and evolution over time and their change in interests and, you know, just these kinds of passages through life. And I think we need to understand that and respect that. And, you know, if, 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 if somebody is in HR and wants to go to engineering, that's a harder hill to climb, you know, because if your degree as an HR person was, let's say, communications, just to pick something that's not engineering mm -hmm. or, or, you know, an, a, a major in Spanish language or something like that. But um, but there's still positions in engineering world that they could do. Sure. Absolutely. And and that 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 would be the the uh, obviously the the alternative of laying people off would be look for other areas in the company if you've if you've uh, found you know enough improvement opportunities to be able to reduce by one engineer whatever it is then you know look for other areas that that person may be passionate about that you could shift them into where you maybe have a gap in your organization yeah, and also and also CEOs hey work with your fellow CEOs and say hey we have some engineers that we're letting go can you hire them. Sure. You know, don't don't just cast them on the street. Get on get on the phone. Do a little bit of work. And we know you're busy. 
but do a little bit of work, call up some of your fellow CEOs. Your business is shrinking, okay, but theirs is growing. Call them up. You got some engineers, or whoever. You know, it doesn't have to be engineers, right. obviously. Right. Um, you know, can you? Uh, you're hiring. Can you? Uh, can you look at our folks? Absolutely. Um, that's not hard to do. Mm -hmm. But it's not the custom. It's not the tradition to do that. It's just let them go, and then of course they'd be, you know, have to get unemployment checks every week. You know, it, it's 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 not a good thing just to dump these people out onto the state. Right, you know, right. To deal with. Um, now, what about the flip side of that? Because there's a lot of companies right now that are struggling to either find good find find any employees or, you know, find the right, right. employees uh, or retain uh, employees. What, what would you say, you know, is the benefit of having real lean, the right type of a continuous improvement culture or being on the right lean journey? What would be the benefits of that for those organizations that are struggling to retain or find employees? Yeah, I mean, there's a very simple relationship. And I know you've seen it and we've all worked in companies where people have had ideas and the boss has said, no, do it my way, my way out. You know, if I want your idea, I'll ask you. Mm -hmm. And then the magic day comes when, um, you know, either a new boss comes in or, you know, Kaizen comes in and so forth and people have ideas and those ideas happen now, you know, at this moment that I'm speaking. And then they actually move forward to try out those ideas, you know, 10 minutes from now. And then, and then they try it out and it works or it doesn't work or whatever. And as a team, they solve a problem and they're like, wow, I love it. You know, it's great. We finally can, can, you know, try out ideas that we have. And you see it, it flips like a light switch practically mm -hmm. and that they become very satisfied with the workplace almost immediately, almost directly on that sole basis that we were allowed to think at work and try new things. That's right. It's and, huge. and of course, yeah, it's huge. And part of this, of course, is if you, if you have a boss that's not supportive of this, then, you know, that's, that's an ongoing problem. But otherwise, it's um, it's a major thing that leads to employee satisfaction because, you know, one of the things we always say is that, you know, we need to understand uh, the, the workers because they're the experts mm -hmm. and, and, uh, in, the, in the job that they're doing. And another way of saying this is workers have complaints about various things. And if they're the experts and know the, the, the origins of these complaints, then we should listen to it. Well, the origin of complaint is not just related to doing your work. It's also the, how your work is managed. Mm. And so if the workers are unhappy with the management, they're the experts as the receivers of management and leadership practice. And so we should be listening to them and saying, if they're the experts and they're saying leadership and management stink or needs improvement or whatever, uh, then we should be listening to that and, and make changes. But it normally, you know, in, in the classical management construct, the, the workers are mere instruments to get the job done, and you don't care what they have to say. Right. And then, you know, in the lean construct, you know, the workers, what they have to say about the job as well as the management and leadership of that job matters. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So, and a uh, powerful point, uh, by the way, uh, because there are so many uh, so many leaders that don't understand that and and won't listen to that because you know maybe they think they have all the answers or whatever it is. Who knows? But uh, yeah. you know, you you can't be selective, right? If you're going to say that you respect your employees and you respect their opinions about the things they're struggling with, when it comes up that it's management, well, then you need to take action on that. You need to actually listen yeah. and, and do something about it. 
What would you say for, uh, you know, someone that's listening that maybe uh, the executive leaders or upper management maybe doesn't support uh, a continuous improvement culture? They don't, maybe they, they, maybe they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk, right? Maybe they, they say that we should do these things or maybe they don't, um, but either way, there's no action that's happening from executive leadership to support you know, a, a lean journey. What, any advice that you would have for someone? Yeah, I, you know, um, they, they need to understand the social science aspect of leadership and management. And there is, I'm, and this is the work that I've been doing over the course of the four books that we just talked about is to understand the social science. I call it the institution of leadership and the system of profound privilege, because you're faced with two choices as a employee or, a, you know, salaried or hourly employee. You're faced with two, two choices to be frustrated forever because you know your bosses don't get it and all of that mm-hmm. um, or you can search for the, the you know your ideal lean company and job hop which has certain benefits and certain problems in doing that sure um, or, or you can educate yourself and say you know what's going on here why does this happen and you know that's it's a it's a you know took me 15 years of research and I'm still researching it to, to understand what's going on and it, it leads to a lot of, you know, oh, you know, a lot of enlightenment, like, oh, you know, now I finally understand what's going on. I don't like it. And, and solutions are, are difficult, but at least now I'm not frustrated and I, I understand the lay of the land mm-hmm. and I can make better decisions career-wise now that I do understand the lay of the land. And if I do job hop, I will have a better understanding of, you know, either what I'm getting into or what I need to go to. Sure. And so too much of lean has been involved with, you know, the technical aspects, A3 reports and looking at Bermuda and all of this. And, you know, lean community really needs to understand that the, 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 the social, economic, historical, philosophical, business, um, aesthetic preconceptions that create classical management, which are, which you need to displace in order to uh, to be successful with lean, and that's difficult to do, as we all know. Mm-hmm. But at least you understand what's going on, and so that you know people who've read my books are like you know, very you know, really super informative, and now I understand what's going on, and you know, and then some people are like, I now can use your books to better interact with my the top leadership team of my company because I know what where their heads at. Right. Right. Yeah. Understanding that where their heads are at is is so key, and, you know, because upper management and, and executives are thinking maybe a little bit different than what, you know, you might be, you know, they're they're The language is even a little bit different in that they're looking like we talked about a little bit earlier. Maybe they're looking for financial benefits or whatever it may, it may be. But understanding just where they're coming from and what their thoughts are can definitely help someone in, you know, starting conversations yeah. or. You know, figuring and importantly, it. they are looking for social benefits. That's again mm-hmm. the, the the social science aspect of this is been is you know been neglected for way too long. So my work is correcting is to understand because most people approach the management, but look at this cost savings and look at this uh, you know increase in throughput and reduction of lead time and quality improvement and teamwork. And that's not hitting the, the the social science aspects that leaders are concerned about. Mm-hmm. What would you say would hit the the those social science 
perspective. We have to understand why status is so important to them, maintaining yeah. status, not ex expanding status, not losing it, and things like yeah. that. And um, you, you talked about classical management earlier. Um, can, can you have just help us define that? Yeah, well, traditional way of doing things, the old way of doing things, batch and queue way of processing material and information, kind of organization, do what you're told, don't think. Um, you know, uh, generally speaking, the, the phrase, whatever is, is right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whereas, you know, the, the lean thinking would be whatever is, is wrong. In other words, in need of improvement, whatever it is. Right. And so, you know. Absolutely. Uh, we also talked a little bit earlier about your uh, root cause analysis on lean transformation failures. I actually saw your your fishbone diagram that you put together uh Oh, yeah, a bold. few weeks ago, yeah. I, I went through it and it was pretty interesting. But what, what was the uh, what was the basis through that, or what, what was the process, I guess, that you went through to conduct that root cause analysis? What did that look like? Well, yeah, I mean that fishbone diagram was a simple analysis. I don't know when it was. It was a long time ago, 15, 18 years ago, something okay. like that. Um, and and that's advanced a lot. Um, and I'll tell you in a moment, but background my background's engineering and my interest in failure analysis comes from my engineering background i um i did technical failure analysis of engineered components for two three years and it was a, an important learning experience and it always stuck with me as a valuable methodology for learning and improving and um and, and much more so than studying what works and why it works and as you know, the phrase, you learn more from failure than from success. Mm -hmm. So there are, first of all, there's, there's two types of lean fa failure that we analyze using a, a diff, not a fishbone diagram, a different process that I'll describe in a minute. But, okay. um, so, so the first is the failure to popularize uh, lean as a management system. And I mean, popularize it amongst the, the C-level crowd, mm -hmm. not, the, not the practitioner crowd. So that's the first type of failure. The second failure is lean transformation failure, why so many companies set out on a path to transform and were unsuccessful in doing it. Yes, they were successful in application of some tools and getting some, you know, improvement, but they're not the transformation that was expected. So, um, so in, 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 in my university course, we analyzed um, um, both types of failures using a root cause analysis method that I designed in 2005 that was to analyze failures in in business and and that methodology has been improved you know ever you know over the years that's sure. since. um so i i created that method because when i was teaching in a business school the professors teach basically success stories they teach a case study method and here's you know why intel is successful and apple successful and so forth and they never talk about these disasters that you read all the time in the wall street journal like the 737 max wells fargo the Morandi Bridge in Italy, the opioid epidemic, and so forth. And so it just ignore all these product failures, these service failures, bankruptcies, the GM ignition switch problem. You remember that being mm -hmm. Michigander. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so overall, over the years, we analyzed 70 of these types of cases. And the method uses a, a four-page format that focuses really on the, the human factors, the hugely important areas of failure that you know, things like A3 reports don't cover because A3 report basically is a problem-solving method. It's not a failure analysis method. Mm -hmm. 
And so it includes things like beliefs and untested assumptions, hmm. um, the different forms of illogical thinking, the different forms of cognitive biases. And so it's looking at the social science aspects of failure and it, it not solely the technical aspects and the technical aspects, you know, weave into these stories. But but it's mainly, you know, what are the social science aspects? So, you know, the first page of the format talks about, you know, what are the leaders of the company concerned about before the disaster and after the disaster? And it breaks it down by different stakeholders, which stakeholders are do they have concerns about customers, employees, suppliers, investors, et cetera. Um, you know, what did they do after the problem emerged? Um, what, what are the inconsistencies between what do they say? What did they say and what did they actually do? The beliefs and untested assumptions. So that's page one. Page two is the tra a traditional cause and effect relationship. But there's a second variation on the cause and re effect relationship, which is a process-based cause and effect relationship. So you can think of a fishbone diagram as sort of the traditional cause and effect, but yep. this one is a process-based cause and effect relationship where we look at business processes, HR, engineering, new process development, finance, et cetera. The third page is uh, a 10 wise root cause analysis with countermeasures. Mm -hmm. And the fourth page sums it up or, or examines the um, cognitive biases, the different forms of cognitive biases, uh, the, the main forms. There's, hundreds of them, right. but the main forms that relate to poor decision-making, and then the main forms of um, illogical illogical thinking. Wow. And so, uh, yeah, so it's very, uh, it's very comprehensive. It's very useful. I mean, there was a, a student the other day saying it was the most intellectually challenging, you know, best course I ever took in university. A lot of students had that to say. Wow. Um, but what what were some of your findings that came out of that? What, can you give some examples of some of the, the things that you found coming out of that? Yeah, um, yes. And I think it's important just to make a note of, you know, one thing that Ono said, if you try to adopt only the good parts, you'll fail. Mm. And But Ono was looking at the technical aspect. The thing I've been interested in is, is um, the social science aspect of why are they adopting the only only the good parts? You know, there's a technical aspect to that, but what's the social science aspect of failure? Sure. And so, um, so anyway, so um, um, so what did we find? So managers, it, it's you find this unusual. <laughs> managers, um, they're they're inconsistent in what they said compared to what they did, which I think we've all kind of experienced that. Oh yeah. But they they relied on beliefs and untested assumptions and just things that they think to be true but are not. And they don't test those assumptions. And of course, we can't go through life testing every belief and assumption, and some beliefs are untestable. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a leadership position, you have a responsibility for other people. And so there are certain beliefs and assumptions related to man, uh, you know, executive decision making that are testable, and you do need to test them. Sure. Um, the leaders are trapped by different cognitive biases. You mm -hmm. know, they're human, so you would expect that, right. just like anybody. And they suffer from different forms of illogical thinking, just like anybody else does. But again, they're in leadership positions. So they need to understand what are these cognitive biases, the, the main ones that affect poor decision making and the different types of illogical thinking that they're likely going to get trapped into. And, and you would, you know, the, the results are surprising because um, you, you wouldn't expect this from very smart people with a lot of business experience. But we constantly find in the you know 70 cases that we've studied over the you know 
you know, what is it, um, 18 years or something, 17 years, um, is that the leaders make these errors in combination with one another. So there's no 80-20 rule for faulty leadership decision-making. If you look at the, mm. the, the, um, the six major cognitive biases and the, the 10 or so major forms of illogical thinking, they don't Pareto out into anything that's you know, recognizable. They're all, all these things happen together. They're intermingled with one another. Hmm. So, so what we find is, you know, leaders talk a lot about change, but they prefer the status quo. Leaders are really bad at estimating. Um, they're easily anchored into wrong ways of thinking. Uh, leaders stick to their decisions, even when, you know, the facts show them to be wrong. Uh, they ignore evidence that contradicts their views. Uh, you see that with lean all the time. Here's sure. the evidence. Ignore it. Right. <laughs> In favor of something right. else. Um, the illogical thinking, uh, there's different forms called abuse of expertise. So people, you know, tend to abuse power when they have it. Mm -hmm. uh, false assumptions due to a lack of go-see. There's a lot of lack of go-see in organizations. So there's faulty assumptions, um, avoiding the force of reason. Um, and politics figures into that. Why do you avoid the force of reason? Because you have a certain political belief system, so you ignore facts. A lot of red herrings to avoid responsibility. So, you know, the, the fourth page culminates into, um, you know, a section where it says, uh, identify your significant learnings. And, um, uh, and so, um, you know, there, there's a, a lot of lessons. Now, unfortunately, you know, the lean community I got to stress the lean leader, lean movement leaders in particular have, have, have completely indifferent uh, to these to these failure analyses. I mean, they're mm -hmm. just it's like there's nothing here, nothing to learn. Mm -hmm. um, but they're aware of the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple of years ago, you know, Jim Womack said there aren't enough successful lean transformations. Mm -hmm. And um, and, you know, so he's, he's written about that not often, but periodically that this isn't working out as expected. And, and the, you know, the, the countermeasure, I'm sorry to say, is ridiculous because it's basically to um, address symptoms and not causes. Mm. And, yeah. you know, to do things that are, well, as I said, it's just ridiculous because the lean world, if anything, should be people who are interested in root causes right. of, of why, why we have these two problems. You know, I don't know how many people are part of this lean community that put in a lot of effort over a lot of years to 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 you know convince CEOs to adopt lean so that's the first type of failure I talked about you know why wasn't lean movement more successful with the C-level crowd and then secondarily why weren't there more lean transformations mm -hmm. and you know to, to, after 30 years or more to sit and say you know let's just fix this problem by addressing symptoms mm. um, you know, just seems very weird. Yeah, um, it does. And you, you, you mentioned that every everybody knows them. What you know knows the causes, or they, or they can read about them. Obviously, through your uh, your study and the results of that. Uh, but they they just aren't doing anything, and it, it makes me wonder why. Why why is it not being addressed at the root? Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, I you know. Um, I, I, I believe they look, I don't know for sure, because I don't, you know, I don't have these conversations with these people. Sure. Um, but 
it, it would be fairly logical to conclude that they would somehow consider that um, these types of failure analyses, you know, if you really understand what's going on, would somehow be damaging to the lean movement or to lean itself. Mm. And so they just mm. rather ignore it than confront the, the fact. And, and my, my difficulty with that is, is that if you respect people, including your customers, your consumers of lean training, lean conferences, lean books, and so forth, you owe it to them to uh, not ignore relevant information as to why they're struggling. And, you know, Lean 101, or at least the way I learned TPS 101, is you shouldn't allow people to struggle. You're, you're, you know, I was taught in a very forceful way. You're a delinquent manager. You're no good as a manager if you allow people that you are responsible for in your team to struggle. Mm -hmm. And yet, the indifference to understanding the causes of those two types of failures um, leads people to struggle. And so that's, you know, uh, a glaring inconsistency in regard to respect for people. Yes, it is. Um, so, um, the other, you know, oh, it, go ahead, it, 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 it's not clear who's leading the lean movement. You know, that's another problem we have. Um, who is the leadership of this movement? You know, and sure. So now uh, it was interesting to me as you were reading through those causes that were those those findings. They were all very specific to leadership. Was there anything outside of leadership yeah. that was identified? No, they're all very specific to leadership because the the, the structure of the failure analysis. I mean, the original uh, naming of this thing was. Decision failure analysis. So ah, it was the okay. Very specific. Failure analysis of, of leadership decisions that led to crises and, and problems in companies that related to their product or service going bankrupt, whatever the case may be, you know, sure. Wells Fargo fraud and so forth, because these have their roots in leadership decisions. Sure. Um, well, leadership so that, is that a was huge, a huge part, you know, of, of any failure, whether it's based, whether, whether it was part of decision making or, or anything. I mean, leadership is obviously a, a massive well, part. Yeah. I mean, for example, at Wells Fargo, the former CEO had a mantra of eight is great, meaning or with some phrase like that, eight is great, meaning uh, any Wells Fargo customer should have eight of our products. And so that led to pushing products onto customers, even when they didn't want it. Hmm. and surreptitiously signing customers up for products so that they could meet the metric that aid is great. Hmm. And the CEO being far removed from the Gamba doesn't know what's going on. And so this aid is great rhyme ends up and mantra ends up leading to a lot of fraud, uh, really at all levels of the company because everybody ignored, you know, what's, what's actually happening hmm. and, uh, and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, leadership is really important, and 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 if you're not uh, connected to the Genba, you don't know what's going on. And, That's right. Uh, you know, and and all of these failures that we looked at are, you know, billions of dollars. You know, one of the one of the common learnings is that leaders are penny wise and pound foolish. You know, they'll set to save a nickel, like the Boeing seven thirty seven wasn't exactly a nickel. They wanted to save a billion dollars on development costs because a brand new plane would have been ten billion. 
the fiasco ends up costing them close to $50 billion. Mm -hmm. That's an extreme example in terms of, but we see that all the time in these failures. A lot of these management decisions relate to saving a little bit of money, but it ends up costing them huge amounts later. Right, right. I think a, a big part of that too is the fact that I see for a lot of companies, for whatever reason nowadays, I see leaders in positions no more than you know, two to three years, five years at the most, but it seems like many leaders feel like they have to make decisions based on the three years that they're going to be in that position or the four years. And so a lot of the decisions that they're making are just based on such small, such a small time frame, rather than looking, you know, long term and thinking what's best for the company and what's best for the organization, what's best for the, the team. And let's make decisions and, you know, that that are going to be more long term and then, benefits. Yeah. And get it again, get input from the bottom of the organization. But that right. doesn't work that way in classical management. The other thing to realize is, you know, as far as I know, in, in MBA programs, leaders aren't I mean, the course that I created, Decision Failure Analysis, is completely unique. There is no other course like it in, in higher education. And I, you know, recently retired from it. But, um, um, you know, these courses don't teach, you know, uh, they don't teach this stuff mm -hmm. in MBA school. They don't teach you, the, if they teach you cognitive biases, it is extracted from leadership decision making and the kinds of high profile failures like the 737 Mac. They don't teach you how these, what the different forms of illogical thinking that, that the leaders of Boeing fell into. And so, you know, you come out of MBA school not realizing that, that you know, your, your chance of failure is, is, is greater, um, is, is great, much greater than, than you realize. Um, you know, here's one of the takeaways, by the way, um, I had a, I have a slide up here, and, and I'm glad I remembered um, to, to refer to this. But, but basically, managers' critical thinking skills is not good. Mm. <laughs> we learn from all these cases. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read from it directly. It says, the things that managers are most confident about, which is analysis, logical thinking, and decision-making, are the things they should be least confident about. Mm. Management information processing is highly error-prone because of the cognitive bias of theological thinking and the stakes are huge right mm -hmm. i mean look at the boeing 737 max i mean just the stakes were huge there but even if one life is lost or one person is injured it's still a huge stake right sure doesn't doesn't have to be 350 people killed and blah blah, blah. so yeah it's huge it's it huge and where where would you say is the balance between you know taking longer uh longer time to to really analyze the data and make sure that we're making the right decisions versus you know pdca cycles quick rapid cycles i mean what what's the balance between the two well, well it's um by the way so i'll answer it this way this failure analysis course is embodied in a book now called a uh, wheel of fortune and the wheel of fortune talks about you know how to how to create a strategy we we refocused this from simple decision failure analysis strategy failure analysis because a lot of these failures were integral to a business strategy that the company had and boeing for example boeing 737 was not a corporate strategy in the sense mm -hmm. of what business do we want to be in but a business strategy in terms of a product line mm -hmm. anyway um so in that book we highlight um 
you know, what would you do to avoid the mistakes that everybody else commonly makes in the development, execution of strategy and the failure of strategy, which usually happens because execution it rarely goes according to plan and, and, and you know, the strategy is a wish with very little flesh on the bones as far as how do you actually do it. And so a lot of people in the company just sort of going about doing things, hoping that these things produce the, the process that leads to the result. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes it doesn't. So anyway, it's Wheel of Fortune if anybody's interested in it. And it's, um, you know, it was, a, it, was, it was a great course and students loved it. Perfect. All right. So one last question. What would you say is the favorite, your, your most favorite topic to talk about? Kaizen. Ah, yes. It's so fundamental. Um, I'll just say quickly that, you know, people say lean is all about learning, but it's really um, about discovery and learning. Mm-hmm. And what's missing from lean, because Kaizen kind of fell off the radar screen uh, in lean world in favor of, you know, A3 reports and value stream maps and gamble walks and all this other stuff. But the discovery piece has been missing. And this is critical to developing people and, um, and, and, and ex- expanding the learning as a result of things you discover through the Kaizen process. Hmm. Powerful. A good way to, to close us out today. Uh, so, uh, I, again, I will throw the link to your, uh, your page into the, the show notes. So if anybody's interested to go check out uh, Bob's books, they're, they're all in the show notes there. Uh, you can obviously follow Bob on LinkedIn. Uh, and we'll throw throw some of the, some of your other um, links into the show notes for for some of your other books and, and points as well, Bob. Uh, thanks again. Really appreciate having you on. Love the love the information and uh, excited to have you back on again at a later point. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Take care, Patrick. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Lean Solutions Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe. This way you'll get updates as new episodes become available. If you feel so inclined, please give us a review. Thank you so much.